Once again, let's turn to the back of our hymn book, to the Canons of Dort, page 914, Article 14. God's use of means in perseverance, Article 14. Then we'll open God's Word to Hebrews 10, reading the verses 19 to 39. Article 14, and just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so he preserves, continues, and completes his work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. Let's open the scriptures now to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning at the 19th verse, reading to verse 39, and then our text is 23 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's our text, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just 
shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So far, the reading of God's holy word. In 2 Kings 20, the Lord healed Hezekiah of a deadly disease and promised to extend his life by an additional 15 years. Did God's promise mean that Hezekiah no longer had to eat or drink? Since God promised to preserve him, could he carry on without food or water? In Acts 27, The Lord promised to preserve Paul and the crew of the ship who were caught in a violent storm. There would be no loss of life. Only the ship would be lost. Did God's promise to preserve them mean that when the ship broke apart, they didn't have to make an effort to swim or hang on to broken pieces of the ship? The answers to the questions are rather obvious, are they not? Of course Hezekiah had to eat and drink. The preservation of his life included the use of means. And of course, Paul and the ship's crew had to swim or hang on to broken pieces of the ship. The preservation of their life included the use of means. Well, the same is true with respect to God's promise to preserve his children in faith so that they will never perish. His promise to preserve the elect to the very end so that they will not fall away does not mean that you can sit back and relax the rest of your days and do nothing to sustain your spiritual life. God expects you to make use of the means that he has provided to sustain your relationship with him. This is what we find in Article 14 of the fifth head of the canons, the use of means in perseverance. God has joined the preservation of your spiritual life with the hearing of the gospel and the use of the sacraments. Today, as we consider this theme, we want to reflect upon Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Our text speaks, first of all, of the need of perseverance in the Christian profession in verse 23, and second, the means of perseverance in verses 24 and 25. First, the need. Have a look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, unswervingly. The writer expresses the need of perseverance. Those who trust Christ have a confession of hope to which we must hold. When a sinner lives apart from Christ, he can be busy with numerous activities, business, entertainment, sports, shopping, parties, and so on. But at the end of the day, he still feels a measure of what? Hopelessness and emptiness. He has no ultimate hope to which he can cling. His future is uncertain. That which is beyond the grave is unknown and fearful. Much of life is a mystery. 
There are no definite and satisfying answers to the deep questions of life and death. There is no sure hope. The believer, on the other hand, who has understood his sin and come to an awareness of God's remedy for sin through Christ, our substitute, he no longer lives in uncertainty. He has found something that is rock solid and unchangeable. That which is beyond the grave is no longer mysterious, unknown, and fearful. He begins to see definite answers to the questions of life and death. When a person puts his trust in Christ, he is filled with hope. He makes confession of that hope before God, his church, and before the world. A confession of hope. The hope we profess is a declaration of trust in the promises of God. What God says is true and reliable. When we use the word hope in ordinary conversation, it's usually an expression of uncertainty, right? If I say to you, I hope I will make it safely home, I'm expressing a wish that is uncertain. What I'm saying is, that is my desire. But I won't be certain until I'm actually at home, parked in my driveway. When the writer of Hebrews told his readers to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, he was not using the word hope to express uncertainty. He was using it as an expression of the believer's sure confidence in Christ. The confession of our hope is the confession that in Christ we have all that is necessary for time and eternity. What God declares in his word is absolutely true and unchanging. When we place our hope and trust in his word, we will never be let down. Verse 23b says, for he who promised is faithful. The promises in which our hope rests are made by a God who is faithful. God will do what he said he will do. The Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, he who calls you is faithful. And therefore, as a Christian, you are to hold fast. Press on in your confession. The author of Hebrews says, hold fast without wavering, unswervingly. Don't let go. Don't let go. Remaining true to one's confession is not automatic. It requires strenuous discipline. To hold unswervingly requires effort, sweat, and struggle. Well, on the one hand, the Bible clearly teaches the perseverance of the saints, that those whom God in his sovereign grace has chosen in eternity past will persevere till the end. He who begins a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. They are kept by the power of God. While the Bible teaches the beautiful truth of preservation, it also teaches the necessity of human perseverance, continuing steadfast in the faith, bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. Divine preservation does not mean that God's people can slumber in their easy chair, or as the hymn writer said, carry to the skies on flowery beds of ease. That is not the Christian life. We do not lie down and say, God is sovereign, and if he wants me to persevere, I will persevere. 
If he wants me to be saved, I'll be saved. There is nothing I can do. Of course, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Christ alone can save you. And ultimately, you are not the one who perseveres. Only God can preserve you. But that never takes away from your responsibility to believe and to continue believing and acting upon the promises of God. Again and again and again, the scriptures exhort us to hold fast without wavering. That's your responsibility. We read in Acts 14, 22, that the apostles exhorted the believers to continue in the faith. Acts eleven twenty three, 23, he encouraged them to continue with the Lord. Acts 13, 43, Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Revelation 3.11, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. You see, God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. You have a calling to labor for your own preservation, to hold fast. And brothers and sisters, that can be hard work. It's difficult to be unwavering. The Jewish Christians to whom this letter was written had times when they were wavering. They had started off well in their Christian pilgrimage. They had ministered to the saints. They had endured great struggles and persecutions, and yet eventually they became slack in their Christian walk. Turn back with me, please, to Hebrews 5 and verse 11. Hebrews 5. Verse 11, in this fifth chapter, the author was explaining the character and work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But when he comes to verse 11, he pauses. What was the problem? Look at verse 11. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, they seem to have been sincere, dedicated, hardworking believers who eventually became slack in their Christian walk. They should have been at a point where they were teaching others, and yet the writer of this letter had to rebuke them for being spiritual babies unable to swallow solid food. How easy it is for Christians to become lax in our walk with the Lord. Yes, also those of us who have been born and raised with the gospel. It is to our shame when new Christians are devouring the meat of the word and we who should know better and should be teachers sometimes still need milk. On this side of eternity, we still have such a propensity to backslide. Apart from the grace of God, we would be, as Peter says, like a dog who returns to his own vomit. Or as a sow who, after having washed, goes back to wallowing in the mire. There are so many things that can cause us to waver from the confession of our hope. It could be through persecution, as the recipients of this letter faced, or prosperity abundance, materialism, or false teachers, or disappointments, 
trials or the attractions of the world, any number of distractions. It's one thing to make a verbal confession of hope, but it's quite another to hold fast without wavering. It's one thing to call yourself a Christian, but it's a difficult challenge to consistently live the life of one. John Bunyan, in his allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, portrays the Christian as being up against mighty giants, the dreaded Apollyon, and Vanity Fair. Bunyan depicts the Christian as being faced with numerous diversions that would lead him away from the right road leading to the celestial city. There are frequent threats to the Christian. Time and again, we are tempted to stray from that path leading to life. When temptations come, we must remember our confession, the confession of hope, hold fast without wavering. Brothers and sisters, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Or are some of you perhaps becoming dull of hearing? Do you find yourself becoming lax and indifferent to spiritual things? Are any of you being tossed to and fro? Do you find your devotional life and prayer life slipping away? Do you no longer pray with your wife, with your husband, or with your family as you once did? Do you no longer spend regular time in the Word? Christ calls you to remain focused upon His unchanging promises, to hold fast in obedience to Him, trusting that He who promised is faithful. Well, as we proceed to verses 24 and 25, we notice the means that God has provided for us to persevere in the Christian profession. Point number two, the means. Look with me to verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let us consider one another. The Christian life is not lived in isolation. Perseverance is a community effort. There is a corporate responsibility. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are charged with the care of others in the body. You are to assist them to hold fast the confession of hope unswervingly. Every member of the body has received certain gifts from the Lord. Those gifts are not merely to advance your own spiritual development as an individual. The gifts that he bestows upon his people are for the purpose of advancing the spiritual life of the church corporately. As the gifts are used for the mutual encouragement of the body, the communion of saints is experienced. Our catechism states it so well in Lord's Day 21 when it says, everyone must know himself bound to employ his gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and salvation of other members. The exercising of one's gifts within the body is not optional. God requires that you use what he has given you for the good of his church. 
In our Tuesday night profession of faith class, I pointed out that one of the problems that churches often face is that some members are nothing more than spectators. What's a spectator? Well, a spectator is one who watches without taking an active part. If you go see a hockey game, you sit in the stands and watch a group of players in action. You watch without taking an active part. Occasionally, you might mumble a comment to the person next to you or offer a word of criticism about the players, which is easy to do as a spectator. When you merely sit back and watch, you do not really understand the struggles and frustrations that those players are experiencing. Brothers and sisters, I fear that many churches have some spectators on their membership roles. We are a society that is entertainment-oriented. Many people are accustomed to sitting before their television or computer as spectators, looking for shows to entertain. And if nothing suits their fancy, they can switch the channel or turn it off. That's one thing about the television. It never requires that you take an active part. You don't, if you don't like it, you can always turn it off. Unfortunately, some people also treat the church in that manner. There are those who think of the church only in terms of what they can get out of it. And of course, you should be getting something out of your church. But that's not the whole story. We must also think of the church in terms of what we can give to others. God doesn't allow the members of his church the option of being mere spectators. You don't have that option. If you come to church week after week, take your same familiar spot, hear a sermon, and then make a quick exit only to do the same thing all over again the following week, then you do not understand your corporate responsibility. You do not rightly understand what it means to be a member of Christ and a partaker of all his treasures and gifts. If you do not utilize the gifts that God has given you, offering yourself as an active participant in the church, then scripture tells you that you are living in disobedience. Coming to church is very different than coming to a, a hockey game or a play. As a spectator at a hockey game or a play, you're not expected to do anything. You can take your seat in the stands without getting involved, but that is not so as a member of the body of Christ. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, a pastor, what can I do? How can I use my gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members? Perhaps you're thinking, I can't preach. I'm terrible at public speaking. I'm not a good teacher. I'm not articulate in formulating scriptural truths. What can I do to be an active participant in the body of Christ and to give fuller expression to the communion of saints? Well, let's look again at verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, or spur one another on toward love and good works. Now notice, there's nothing in this verse about preaching, public speaking, teaching, or being articulate and formulating biblical truths. All these things are important and necessary in the church, but they're not everything. 
we are told to consider one another. We are to have a genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of other believers. We are to seek to be of service to them in some way. Every member of the body experiences times of frustration, discouragement, sorrow, and failure. Every member. As their brother or sister, you can consider their needs. As members of Christ, you are to stir up love and good works. When a brother or sister is discouraged, you can direct them, first of all, to the glory of Christ and His love for sinners. You can direct them to the greatest demonstration of love, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God at Calvary. And then having directed your brother's attention to Christ and his great love for his people, encourage him to show his love in return by taking up a life of good works. Encourage your brother or sister to a life of greater zeal, greater godliness, greater service. Exhort your brother or sister to use their gifts for the growth of other members. Gently press your fellow church member in his testimony, her testimony for Christ, and encourage him or her to stand up for Jesus as a soldier of the cross. As members of Christ, we all, we all have opportunities to spur one another on toward love and good works. We are to seize those opportunities so that together we will grow in the love of Christ becoming more like Him. And then congregation, I want you to notice the setting in which this mutual exhortation is to take place. The setting. Look with me to verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 25 is very clear that believers are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The assembly on the Lord's Day is the most significant aspect of the life of the church. It is God himself who assembles his people each Lord's Day to speak to them, equip them, encourage them, admonish them, so that you in turn can speak to, encourage, and admonish each other. The assembling of believers together for worship on the Lord's Day is not optional. God calls His people to assemble. He calls you to worship. He calls you to gather in His presence to hear the reading and preaching of the gospel. And therefore, if you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you're not only neglecting your responsibility to your fellow Christian, but you are also ignoring the call of God Himself. The writer of Hebrews in verse 25 said that there were some who were ignoring the call of God. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, or as some are in the habit of doing. As some are in the habit of doing. The writer was aware of those who were not faithfully heeding the call of God. They were willfully neglecting the means of grace. 
In the words of Article 14, neglecting the exhortations, threats, and promises of the Word, carelessly neglecting the sacraments, and thoughtlessly ignoring their corporate responsibility. Brothers and sisters, when someone neglects the assembling together, it's an indication that he is wavering from that confession of hope. It is a sign that he's not holding fast, an indication of waning spiritual zeal. We are living at a time in which we are seeing a forsaking of the assembly. For many, for many, the Lord's Day has become my day, especially so during the summer months. Many people like to spend their time at the beach, the cottage, the amusement parks, and forsake the assembly. I suspect most of you have seen churches with a sign on the front, closed July and August. You've seen that? Closed July and August, or the months of July and August are combined services with another congregation. Why? Because of dwindling attendance. Many people become busy with other things that are more appealing to the flesh. On Sunday afternoon or evening, some would rather relax on the couch watching a ball game or, or go for a walk in the park than to assemble with the people of God. When a church has 100 families on the rolls, but only 75 show up for the services, and a smaller group yet attend the second service, then there is a spiritual complacency in the life of that church and lack of understanding as to the importance of the means of grace. If we do not faithfully participate in the life of the church, then we're not using the means that God has provided for our perseverance and we're not living as the Lord wants us to live. I knew a man who claimed to be a Christian, but he seldom went to church. When people spoke to him and challenged him, his response was, I just don't feel the need. I just don't feel the need. He said he could read his Bible and worship in the privacy of his home. For the rest, he felt that he just did not need the church. But congregation, what's the problem with that kind of response? There are, of course, a number of problems. One of them is glaring. He was thinking of the church only in terms of what he could get from it. He was thinking of the church only in terms of what he could get from it. He was not seriously considering the fact that by his absence, the body as a whole was weakened. He did not consider the fact that the treasures and gifts that God had given to him were to be used for the advantage and salvation of other members. When you give up faithfully gathering with the church, the entire body is weakened. When you fail to give yourself to labor for the preservation of others within the body, the Lord, listen, the Lord will hold you accountable when your brother or sister wavers from his or her confession. How crucial it is for God's people to assemble together on the Lord's day. It is here that we spur one another on toward love and good works. 
It is here that we are to assist in rekindling the fire of our brother or sister's devotion. It is here that the love of Christ is spoken of, reflected upon, shared, and gloried in. Verse 25 says that it is here that we are to be exhorting, encouraging one another. It's not only the preacher who exhorts the congregation. It's the task of every member to exhort the church from the Word of God. The pulpit, of course, is the primary means by which God's people are exhorted. And the sacraments are given by God to feed our souls and strengthen our faith. But the Word and sacraments are not the only ways to be encouraged. When you speak and fellowship together, you are to use what God has taught you to be a source of encouragement to others. Speak of the blessings that God has granted you in that week. Boast in the works of the Lord to those around you. The Lord's Day is a day for mutual exhortation. The older are to exhort the younger, The younger are to support the older. The children are to learn from the parents. The parents are to be encouraged by the simple faith of the children. Every member of every age, of every walk of life, can be used of the Lord for the mutual encouragement of the body. The Lord's Day is a special day for mutual exhortation. And so I encourage you to make it your prayer every Sunday. Lord, use me this day to be an encouragement to others at Bethel. Use me this day to be an encouragement to others at Bethel. Dear friends, we need to understand that there's some urgency in this matter. Why? Why? Well, because the author of this epistle says that our mutual exhortation is with a view to... The approaching day. Look again at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day, verse 25, is capital D. The day when Jesus will return. The closer we come to that day, the more zealous and eager we should be. When a young couple prepares for their wedding day, the closer they come to that day, the busier they are, right? In that final week, the families involved work with diligence and eagerness with a view to the approaching day. Their mind is often busy with it all day long, all week long, even thinking about it during the night. In some homes, that's all that they can talk about, the approaching day when the bride and the bridegroom are united. And then when the day comes, they are properly prepared and they can enjoy a wonderful celebration. Congregation, so it should be in the assembly of the people of God. We as church are to prepare for the great wedding day when Christ will come for his bride. As we see that day approaching, we should be all the more busy exhorting, spurring one another on toward love and good works. The Lord's Day is a day through which we are prepared for the final day. 
The closer we come to the wedding day, the busier you should be. The more it should be on your minds, the more you should speak of it. And then, when the day arrives, the church will be properly prepared and we can enjoy a blessed celebration as Jesus, the bridegroom, takes his bride to himself and the confession of our hope is fully realized. Brothers and sisters, are you laboring with a view to the approaching day? Are you laboring with a view to the approaching day? Are you laboring for your own preservation and are you laboring to prepare others within the body of Christ? Are you using the Lord's day to that end, using your gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and salvation of other members? Or are you a spectator, one who watches without giving yourself? Are you one who sits in the bleachers observing all that takes place without taking an active part? Or do you perhaps find the assembling of ourselves together to be rather burdensome, a tedious weekly exercise? Are you bored with the Lord's Day? If you are, then you should seriously consider the confession of your hope. Do you really understand and appreciate the hope of the gospel, the hope that comes from knowing Jesus Christ? If you find meeting with God's people to be a bore, a tedious weekly exercise, then how will you ever be able to look forward to that great assembly that surrounds the throne of God? How will you be able to look forward to the day when that great multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered to the bridegroom? If you do not cherish the Lord's day, if you do not value assembling with the saints, perhaps you're not holding fast the confession of your hope. Perhaps you're wavering. Beware. As you assemble with each other here in the presence of God, you have a foretaste of the great worshiping assembly in heaven. As we exhort, encourage, and strengthen one another, we're preparing each other to enter that heavenly assembly. And so, brothers and sisters, the Lord's day is absolutely crucial. Together we labor as we see the day approaching. Together we work to prepare for the wedding. Together, together we build and support the people of God. Together we exercise our gifts for the mutual preservation of the body and the glory of God. And then, by His grace, together we will be received into the arms of the bridegroom to experience the fulfillment of our hope together received into the loving embrace of our Savior. Congregation, do not neglect the special day that God has given you. 
Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but exhort one another, exhort one another, exhort one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. May this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day be a day for mutual exhortation until you enter the eternal Sabbath. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the means that you have chosen by which we persevere and by which we help our brother and sister to persevere in holding fast to the hope the confession of our hope. We pray, Lord, that if there are any spectators here who are unwilling to give themselves, unwilling to use their gifts, that you will, Lord, press upon them the importance and the privilege of these things. We pray that each and every one of us would take pleasure in the Lord's day, that you will use all of us, old and young, male or female, whatever our station in life. We pray that you will use our children and our young people, that they may also see their calling and their responsibility, not in any way to lead each other astray, but to point each other to the Lamb of God, that love that is beyond our comprehension. We thank you for the fellowship we enjoy here on the Lord's Day following the service a time of interaction, mutual encouragement. We pray, Lord, that you'll use each one of us, each and every one. Sometimes we may feel that we have little to contribute, and yet, Lord, you have placed each member in the body for a purpose, and we are to use what you have given us for our brother, for our sister's edification and sanctification. May we labor with a view to the approaching day. May we have our eyes fixed upon the arrival of the bridegroom who will come to receive his bride to himself. And so, Lord, may we labor for that great wedding day, that great feast that is promised. Convict us, Lord. Give us joy. In service to you, that here in this assembly, each Lord's Day, give us a foretaste of the great assembly. Those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be assembled in your presence to declare your glory, to celebrate who you are and what has been done in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, give us eyes of faith to see beyond this building May we see, Lord, may we look into heavenly places, into that great assembly. Fill us with joy and fill us with an eagerness to walk alongside each other. In the name of Christ, amen.